All right, so as we usually do when we're starting a book, um, I'm going to ask you everything you know about the book of Job here in just a second. But before we get to that, the reason why I'm using the microphone tonight is um, I'm going to record these. We're going to put them on the website at uh, our website is WSRCOC, Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, slash Job. So all of the recordings, the additional uh, study material that I handed out last week, and um, all of that will be on the website if you want it. So, um, so we're going to be using the microphones so that we can record. But the book of Job, tell me everything you know about the book of Job. And that may be a short list, and that's okay, because we don't know a whole lot about the extracurricular stuff about the book of Job. But tell me what you know about it. Who's the main character? Job. <laughs> right, he's a rich man. What'd you say? He lived, lived in the land of, the, of Uz, right? Um, not to be confused with Ur, which is where Abraham lived, or Oz, which is where the TV show, the movie's about. Um, but the land of Uz, right? Um, who wrote the book of Job? Don't laugh at my corny jokes. Who wrote the book of Job? We have no clue. Um, in fact, it kind of ends very quickly, very abruptly, and that's usually what everyone remembers about the book of Job, right? Either, you know, everybody, relatively speaking, everyone knows about chapter 1, right, which is what we're going to go over tonight. Everyone knows about chapter 42, where Job is restored. Most people in the church have studied chapters 40 and 41, because that is God's answer, and he uses two creatures, as uh, what we'll talk about here in just a minute, to, to show Job that Job is a very small piece in the puzzle of creation. What are those two creatures? You remember their names? Behemoth and Leviathan, right? The Behemoth and the Leviathan. They're two creatures. Everyone has tried to figure out what these creatures are. Everything from they're just mythical creatures that the Jews would have remembered about, Um, the problem with that is God doesn't seem like he's talking about a mythical creature here when he says, when he describes these, these animals, um, they've, you know, people have said that they're rhinoceroses and, um, and maybe the Leviathan is an alligator. The only problem with that is Leviathan breathes fire and I've never seen an alligator breathe fire and rhinos have very strong hides but not as strong as the behemoth is described. So these two creatures in Job 40 and 41 are actual, real-life creatures that we don't have anymore. Now, if you're going to think about a, a long animal that breathes fire in our culture, what would you think about? Dragons, right? Dragons. If you're going to think about a very large creature who has thick skin and walks slowly, and when he walks... The ground underneath him shakes. You might think of some sort of dinosaur, right? It's exactly what they are, okay? Um, I know that it is far-fetched far in our society to say that, but the Leviathan and the Behemoth are dinosaurs. The reason why Job would have known about the Leviathan and Behemoth is because he lived during the time of dinosaurs. It's just, there's, there's no way around it in the Scripture. God uses them as a picture. Now, Let's go back to the first chapter, though, so we don't lose sight of what we're going to talk about tonight. So we don't know who wrote it. It's about Job. He lives in the land of Uz. He is very rich. 
uh, what we'll read about here in just a second. Um, something happens in chapter 1, this meeting between the sons of God, which we'll talk about. And because of that meeting, Job is stripped of everything. And uh, most people know the overall story of the book of Job. But chapters, the chapters in the middle um, are often forgot about because they're just conversations. And they're recorded as poetry. Okay? Remember what we talked about last quarter, that historical biblical narrative is sometimes interlaced with poetry. Um, do, we have, do we have poetry that is written about actual narrative events? Rap music? Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Um, yesterday, I got... okay. Just to give you a little insight into my nerdiness, and I'm turning into my father. Yesterday, I got an Echo Dot. You know, the cool little things for Christmas that you can say, you know, Alexa, play whatever music. So I said, Alexa, play me some music from my Spotify. And it came on, and I texted my dad because this was hilarious. It came on, um, now what is the song called? The song about the ship that sinks. What's it called? The sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. There we go. It's super nerdy, like, folk music. Um, and Becca walked in and said, are you serious right now? And then turned around and walked out. And I texted Dad and said, I'm turning into you. I'm sorry. Anyways, so, yes, we have poetry songs about the Edmund Fitzgerald, about, you know, we, we use poetry to talk about narrative all the time, and they did the same way. So this book is primarily narrative for the most part of it, which is why it is in the wisdom literature. It's not like a narrative that we find in the rest of Scripture because we know when the rest of the narratives happened. We don't know when Job happened. It is dated somewhere between 1500 B.C. and 500 B.C. thousand years, which also coincides with the law of Moses. But the events in Job happen before the law of Moses occurs. So, let's read chapters one, chapter 1, 1 through 12, very quickly, just to get the picture of this throne room scene that we see at the beginning of Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, wit, of, wit, of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed, cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, 
who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge, of, hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right, so first we want to talk about Satan. We'll talk about the first few, chap- first few verses here in just a minute. But I want to nail down this idea of Satan, okay? The Hebrew word is Satan. It means the adversary or the accuser. That's what he's doing here, right? In the Bible, in the Old Testament... People got their names because of their character a lot. Um, and that, that has caused some people to either question, you know, if it's true. Um, the, the fact that, you know, maybe we have a name of someone who, who seems to have gotten that name before he lived up to his name's uh, meaning. But Satan has this name. And the, the accuser or the adversary, the one who's against. Because it's naming his character here, okay? We don't, know, we don't know his actual name, and that's perfectly fine. We know what God calls him, right? We may not know what other people's names are. In the New Testament, there's a man named um, Barnabas. What is Barnabas' real name? Anybody remember? Barnabas' real name. Joseph, J-O-S-E-S, Joseph. No one ever remembers him by that name because as soon as he got the name Barnabas, that's his new name. It's a nickname. Um, this is something like that. So let's go through a couple of verses and look at this, this Satan, okay? First thing to realize is what is happening in verse 6? Somebody explain to us what's happening in Job 1 verse 6. Just summarize it, paraphrase it. The who, the sons of God, come before God, and who comes with them? Satan. He comes among them, right? So whatever we're talking about, whatever kind of being, if you want to call it that, that we're talking about, Satan is one of them, right? He came among them. This is a meeting between the sons of God. All right, Job 30, 38 and verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang, Together, and all the sons of God shouted for glory. Sons of God can mean one of two things in the scripture. It can either mean the stars, the moon, stars, planets, the things that you see outside, right? The host of heaven. Or it can mean angels. Can stars sing for joy when they are created? What? Stars are singing? Oh, well, this is like an actual song, though. No, they're not. They're, they're making noise, maybe, but they're not singing, right? In fact, in the vacuum of space, there is no noise. So, uh, sadly, the best movie on the planet, Star Wars, is not true because there's no sound. And you don't get pew, pew, pew in the space because it's a vacuum. There's nothing for the sound waves to go through. So, anyways, um, so... The, the sons of God can either mean stars or it can mean angels. Job 38 and verse 7 says that the sons of God 
shouted and sang together for joy when they were created. Who, is, who could that be talking about? Angels, right? All right, Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Somebody get that for me. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. All right, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Can stars worship God? No. So host of heaven equals sons of God. They're, they're beings, right? These are active beings. They're angels. We don't know a whole lot about them. I've, I've seen churches do entire, you know, one, year-long Bible studies on angels. And all I think is, that's got to be like a whole year of saying, well, I don't know, I don't know. We don't know a lot about these, these creatures. Yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot in there. There's just, they were created by God, they're workers of God. In the New Testament, the word angel means, means minister or, or person who's sent on behalf of someone. Kind of like an apostle, so we get a little bit of insight into it there. But the fact is, we don't know a lot about these creatures. But we do know... Number one, they are created. They're not like little gods, right? They're created by God. Number two, we know that they, their point at least, their purpose, is to worship God. Satan is one of them. Now, let's read a couple more passages. Uh, Psalm 148 and verse 2. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all, the, all his hosts. So there's the angels. So we've gone from sons of God to hosts of heaven. Now we've got this word called angels. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. So if, it's a, if they're somehow physical, if they're, some, they're here, they're in existence, they are not God. They are created beings. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 tells us how Satan got to the point where he has this name called the accuser. Somebody read that. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. Second Peter 2 verse 4. Alright, so, what happens with angels when they sinned? They were cast into hell, Gehenna, the, the torment place, right? And they're held what? They're kept there until when? Until the judgment. Okay, so, this is all we can figure out from Scripture. There's not a lot here. We don't know, you know, when it happened, and there's passages in Isaiah that people say are talking about Satan that are really talking about other people and, and the morning star and all that stuff. But all we know is that at some point, angels had the ability to sin. Maybe they still have the ability to sin. Maybe they don't. Maybe they've already passed their time. When you look at us, okay, let's just look at them from what we know about us. We are put here, 
created beings for a short time, and then what happens after that time? We die, right? We have no real indication that they die. They may not, right? But we die, and then what happens? Eventually, we are judged, and if we are accepted because we're shown to be faithful to him, we're accepted into heaven where we cannot sin any longer, right? We've passed our, uh, the, the old-time preachers call it the probationary period. We've passed our probationary period. We've shown ourselves faithful to God. It seems like the angels had that same thing. Either they had it or they're still in it or it's some kind of continuous thing. We don't really know. But whatever happened, they had the ability to sin. Satan was apparently one of those. Just given some common sense, it seems to me like Satan was probably the first one that did it, right? Or maybe, maybe if he's not the first one, maybe he's the one that did it the most. Or, you know, he rebelled in some way to where now he is the adversary. He is the one that is kind of leading the charge against God. But he's not equal with God, right? So is he omnipresent? Is he everywhere at all times? No. But, name some ways that we can see Satan today. On the movies, yeah, if you watch the news, all the things that are happening, horrible things that are happening. So, he is not everywhere, but his influence is pretty strong, right? In, um, at the beginning of, at the beginning of World War II, before it ever started, it was very obvious that Hitler was going to invade Poland. And so you had a lot of Polish people leaving. You had a lot of Jews leaving because they knew that once Poland's invaded, it's going to get very bad for us. Um, In fact, in World War II, the majority of the concentration camps were were, were held where? In Poland. Right, in Poland. The Polish people just kind of jumped right in uh, in line with with Hitler for some reason. So, in in 1940-something... I don't remember what year it was. Hitler invaded Poland. What? 39, 38, something like that. Um, Hitler invaded Poland. Did Hitler actually invade Poland? Was Hitler there? No, he probably wasn't there, right? It wasn't like Hitler strapped on, you know, an M1 Garand and jumped in a Panzer and drove into into Poland, right? No, but his influence did, right? His workers did, his soldiers did. That's the same way with Satan. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. But he is, his influence is everywhere. He is very tricky. He's not that intelligent because he keeps fighting a battle that he's already lost. I mean, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Um... But Satan, so he comes to God with the sons of God. He is one of the sons of God. Okay? Just let that sink in. The adversary is accepted into God's presence as a son of God, as an angel. But where is God in Job 1? In heaven. And yet, who's there? The adversary, right? 
So don't ask me why, don't ask me how that works. I have no clue. It, it boggles my mind every time I go to read the book of Job. Why in the world is Satan allowed into the place that sin cannot be? I don't know. It's just one of those things. The book of Job has a lot of times where I don't know comes up. Why, why doesn't God just tell Job what's going on? I don't know. Why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Why didn't he destroy these angels, 2 Peter 2, 4? Maybe somebody can tell me this. Why didn't God, instead of casting them down to hell, and apparently giving them some free reign here on earth, right, to mess with us, why didn't he just destroy them? Just done. I mean, you created something. If, my mom always tells me, I made, brought you into this world, I can take you out, right? You create something, why can't you just destroy it? The only thing I can think of, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. The only thing I can think of is that it glorifies God more for Satan to be here than to not be here. Because it makes stronger believers in Christ, or in God in general, in the Old Testament, New Testament, stronger followers of him. It, it allows God's creation that's made in his image to make decisions that he needs us to make, right? He created us because he wanted to be worshipped. But he wasn't just going to create robots. Because that, that's not worship, right? Worship is willful, deliberate, bowing down. The word's proskuneo. Bowing down before God, right? So, you know, the illustration, you're walking through the store at Christmas time and silent night comes on. Did you just accidentally worship? No, because... You can't accidentally worship, right? It's something that you actively do. So, God created us in his image wanting to be worshipped. And the adversary, Satan, allows that to happen. So all I can think is, in my mind, it works better if God just destroys Satan altogether. But of course, we're not dealing with my mind, thankfully. Uh, we'd all be in big trouble. We're dealing with, with God's knowledge and God's omnipresence and omniscience. So all I can think is that it, it works better for him, glorifies him more for Satan to be here, the angels that, dis, that rebelled to be here, than to not be here. Yeah, Father Elias, the, the, the first murderer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. That it, you know, with with the temptation, God always gives a way of escape. What is the the, the way of escape? Is this right? We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us a way of escape through salvation through the Word. And so, and and and, and yeah, and a will to do that. Right. So, so that's a little bit about Satan. That's really just about everything we know about Satan. Uh, other than going to every single verse, there's not a lot there. Second, uh, Ephesians 6 and verse 11 says that if we put on the armor of God, we will withstand the wiles or the, the tricks of the devil, right? Is the armor of God a literal armor? No. Is, it, is the armor of God some, some kind of magical spell? 
that you have to put on every day. No. I remember one time um, some preacher along the way told mom that every day you have to put on your armor of God. So for like four years straight, every day when she dropped me off at school, we would recite Ephesians 6 because you have to put on your armor of God. That, that idea is just misunderstood. And then once we figured it out, I remember the day that Mom and I figured out that you don't have to just, like, repeat it. Uh, it was, it made the ride to school much more pleasurable for me. But, um, but he's everywhere, his, his influence is everywhere. That's really all we know about him. Um, the book of Revelation gives some more insight, but keep in mind that the book of Revelation is using him as a picture of Rome, right? So the whole Satan was bound for a thousand years and all this stuff is a picture of Rome. So don't read too much into that and think Satan is somehow tied and then he's going to be loosed. And man, if he's tied up now, wait to see what happens when he's loosed and all that. You know what I mean? It, it gets very, it gets terrifying to think about that sort of stuff. Because that that's not, there's, that's not in line with biblical interpretation. So, let's go on from Satan now. Any questions, anything? I, I don't think I can answer them, but any questions about Satan? That's not an angel, right. Right. That phrase, that phrase, sons of God, um, is tricky in Scripture because Christians are sons of God. Does that mean we're angels? No. Sometimes it's talking about angels. Sometimes it's talking about the host of heaven. And sometimes it's talking about people who follow God. In Genesis 6, it's people who follow God. I remember one time I went to go get my hair cut and the lady knew I was a, or found out I was a preacher and she had... She wanted to ask me about the giants and where they live now. And I said, I, I, I got some tall people that live in China sometimes. And they come over here and play basketball. And she said, well, you know, the giants that came from Genesis 6 when the angels mated with mankind. Genesis 6 is talking about human beings who are followers of God in relationships with people who are not in followers, uh, followers with God and the problem that comes from that, which is what? You're not going to be able to help both sides. Do what? Yeah. Right. Right. Line of, yeah, line of Seth versus line of Cain is Genesis 6. Line of Cain, they're out in the land of Nod, you know, being vagabonds, and then they intermarry, and the problems that come from that, right? Yeah, it's just a really tall person. Yeah, exactly. It was it was some kind of like, you know, race of people that were really tall. Or maybe not a race, a, a tribe of some sort, yeah. Bad drivers. No, okay. And one of his 
Yeah, and, and, and the devil uses Satan, uses, you know, anything that he can get to just kind of get a foot in the door, you know? It, he's not making people do things. But after thousands and thousands of years, he doesn't have to, you know, walk up to us today and tempt us with an, with an apple or pomegranate or tomato or whatever that thing was. Doesn't have to do that anymore. He's done a really good job at, at making it to where it looks way better to be outside than inside. But we talked about Sunday, right? Psalm 73. I believe it was a tomato. <laughs> I believe it was a tomato. You know why? Because, you know, tomatoes don't grow on trees anymore. But they do grow on bushes, right? And so that was a curse. This is all makeup, so don't act like I'm, you know. It's a curse against tomatoes, and that's why they live in vines and bushes. This just isn't in the Bible, you know. And, uh, and they're poisonous. You didn't know that, right? Tomatoes are poisonous. They, they actually are in, if you eat, you know, hundreds of pounds of them. Uh, but anyways, back to, the, back to the Scripture. So this, this Job. Now, let's talk about the overall picture of Job because there's a lot of different ways that people can interpret the book of Job. Because it is, it is poetry. It is, um, there, there are some things that, you know, we just don't understand about it. Like Behemoth, Leviathan, how Satan is in the throne room of God. Those sorts of things. Um, we don't know when it was written. We don't, here's the thing. We know when it's set. It's set before Moses. Now, did you catch in Job 1 where it might give the idea that it is set before the law of Moses? That the setting is before the law came into being when they had the tabernacle and they had the, the, patriarch, or the patriarchal um, sacrifices and those sorts of things. Can you catch it? Verse number 5, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send to consecrate them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Who offered the, who offered the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, in the Old Testament under the law of Moses? The priests, right? The priests. Under the patriarchal law, before Moses ever came, the head of the household did. So it set pre-Moses. We don't know when. We don't know any. It, it, for all we know, it could have happened before the flood. And this is a writing down of a story that was passed down from Noah and his family that happened before. We don't know when it happened. We just know it happened before Moses. We don't know when it was written. We don't know who wrote it. And so because of that, whenever there, is, whenever there are questions about a scriptural book like those... Interpretation techniques come up. So one of the interpretation techniques is that, this is kind of a newer one, that God is being a bully in this book. And that he is proving to Job that you better listen to me or else. The problem with that is, in, in, now you tell me if this sounds strange to you, but the problem with that idea is it, it misses the whole point of the first two chapters. When the, when the actual problems are coming against Job. God isn't saying, alright Satan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go take all of his cattle. 
I want you to take all of his friends. I want you to take all of his children, all of his, you know, storehouses and his house and everything. He's not saying that. Job 1 and 2 shows that God, and we'll talk more about this next week, but God is allowing this to happen to prove to Satan what we talked about a minute ago. That Satan is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not everywhere. I mean, he knows he's not everywhere. Where have you been, Satan? I've been walking around on the earth. Knows he's not everywhere at all times. But he's proving to Satan who Satan is. Um, and so that first interpretation that, that God is just being a bully, it's really out there, in my opinion, to kind of discredit the book. To say that, you know, Job is, or to, really to discredit the whole scriptures. That, that Job is being beaten up by this bully God that's not worthy of being followed. Because look what he did to Job. Yeah, I can't touch him, God. Yeah, because God is not bound by time, right? And so God's looking, God, God is looking at, at a timeline that's all right in front of him. Um, that brings us, that's a good transition to the next interpretation technique, which is that God is not being a bully. What he's doing is trying to show Job after the first two chapters, okay? Because what happens after the first two chapters? And all this happens, and he loses his family, he loses all his belongings, he's out in the, um, well before that, He's out in the, the trash heap, and he's got boils on him. And he's taking pieces of pottery, and scratching the boils because they itch. And, I mean, you know, it's like chicken pox on steroids. Right. You know why, all right, this is a bad preacher joke. You know why uh, Satan didn't take Job's wife? Because that was the best thing he could have done on his behalf is leave her there. Um, anyway. <laughs> It's just a joke. Don't tell Becca. All right. So, um, so after this happens, after Job has been has lost everything, what does he start doing? His friends start coming to him, talking to him. You know, you're you're in sin. You must not be living righteous because they thought the the prevailing thought of the time. Uh, really, even today, Jesus talks about it in Luke 13. Is that if bad things happen to you? You are not a righteous person. And that idea comes from Scripture misunderstood, right? What? Right. Job starts doubting. He starts questioning God. Why doesn't God answer the questions? He says, why are you allowing this to happen? God never answers him. He never answers him. Even at the end of the book, after he restores everything, Job still has no clue what just happened. For all, for all we know, he never learned why he lost everything, why the rest of the book happens. God never answers his questions. And, and one of those interpretation techniques says that the reason God doesn't answer his, his questions 
is because he is allowing him to learn that the world is much bigger than him, which is why when God speaks to him, he says, you know, were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this and this and this and this? Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and, and I, I partly think this one's true, that, that, that God, is, God is allowing him to, to, to learn. That, and, in, and by asking those questions, he's allowing Job to learn that, you know, this world isn't all about me. I'm much smaller than I thought I was. Um, 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more dil- gladly in, of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Who wrote that? Paul, right? About what? His thorn in the flesh. It could have been his eyesight. It could have been some sickness. I personally believe it was the... the false teachers and the problems that Paul was facing in the churches. That Paul was asking, why can't you just get these people out of here and let these Christians uh, be, be Christians and be loosed of this thing? There again, same reason why Satan, right? And so God says, my grace is sufficient for you. What? Yeah. Because at that point, I mean, think about it. In the Old Testament, they didn't really know. Right. Right. So here's the thing. Everybody always says, well, you know, through all this, Job was, James 5 says that Job was patient. To James, what, uh, Job, James is correct. Job was patient. But everyone says, oh, look at the book of Job. He never sinned in everything he was doing. Somebody read chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. Oh, look at what Job did, went through, and he never sinned in anything that happened in the book of Job. Exactly. We're going to get there here in just a second. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. Job never sinned in all of this, right? Chapter 42. All right. That is the key verse of the entire book. Look at everything Job did, and he never sinned. Everything he went through and he never sinned. Then why at the end of the book did he say he repent? Can you repent if you don't sin? No. Exactly. Exactly. He did sin. He did sin. He was questioning God. Absolutely. He did sin. But that's okay that he sinned. Because the reason why chapter 42, 5, and 6 is the, the focus of the book is... I had heard about you with my ears, but now I, what? Now I see you. Job never got the answer. Ever. But through this, he was able to see the same thing that Paul was able to see. And the same thing that what 
Ray was talking about, Exodus chapter 5 and verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? He saw the same thing that Moses saw when he questioned God. He saw the same thing that Paul saw when he questioned God. And that is that the process is the important thing. Everybody thinks, oh, the book of Job is so great because it has a happy ending. The happy ending is one chapter in a book of 42 chapters, right? That is not the... If a Hebrew writer is wanting to focus on one thing, he's not going to write it at the end as just a little tagline. Oh, and Job got twice as much as he had before. The end. The purpose of this book is the process. It is the questioning. To show that questioning God, yes, is wrong, but it is something that sometimes must happen in order for someone to be able to see God. Job never saw him physically, right? But he saw who God was. He saw the character of God. That, even though all this stuff is happening to me, and notice... Chapter 42, 5 and 6. Is that before or after he's restored everything? Is it before or after? When he says, I now see God. Is that before or after he saw everything? It's before, right? Before he received everything back. The process allowed him to be able to see the nature of God. That he was still alive. That he, he was going to make it through this. And these conversations that we'll talk about over the next few weeks bring to light more and more of the character of God. All right, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's... Right, and I think that's why it's written the way it is. That's why it's in that poet, poetic style. Right. Poetry is much easier for us to apply than is narrative, Right. Narrative is pretty hard to, to apply. Poetry is, is somewhat easier because it, it, it has that nature of, you know, we don't know a lot about it. We don't, know, um, we don't know what the writer was thinking when he was writing and so forth. He's got some timers. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a perfect picture of what we go through. Because he, and I think it's, it's partly encouragement because he made it through with having sinned, but he made it through and was able to repent and understood more because of what he had gone through. Um, and now, you know, Job didn't have the book of Job to read. 
Job may not have sinned the way Job did if he had the book of Job to read, right? Because now we don't have to question God. We, we can read the book of Job and the poetry in it and apply that to our lives. So, um, go ahead. Yeah, we do. And, you know, there's a, there's a balance there because 2 Thessalonians says to prove all things. We are to question some things. Questioning is not wrong. What we talked about Sunday with Psalm 73. Questioning is not wrong. It is when we start questioning the nature, characteristics, love, righteousness of God when we know it already. We know God. God Job knew God was righteous because he is said to have been one who is undefiled in, in chapter 5 or chapter 1, verse 5. Yeah, I think too much questioning without looking for the answers. You know these people that just, they just question everything. Um, preachers my age do it all the time and it drives me nuts. They'll ask questions and they never, they never give an answer. Um, they, they question everything. Why do we do this? Well, it's because we've always done it. No, it's because this is why, right? Yeah, it, it, when it goes too far, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In this, in studying for this book a few weeks ago, I listened to a sermon from a famous theologian, he's not a member of the church, but he said, I'm going to try to paraphrase this as best as possible. We always find the answers to our questions, just not when we want the answers to the questions. <laughs> um, sometimes the answers come long, long, long after, and uh, we go back and go, hey, that makes sense, right? Providence is always visible in hindsight, and never when you're in it. So, All right, let's go ahead and have a break. Uh, if you go and listen to this online, just know that everything y'all said is not going to be on the recording, so I'll have to figure that one out. Um, but everything I said will be, so, all right, and, and that is available on, online if you want to go back or you miss one or you need some extra study helps and that sort of thing, so, all right, thank y'all.